Hello, and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to say our names this time, and you I did. didn't. You did. I figure by now people better know us, gosh darn it. I mean, so we'll see. We'll see. You're a lot shorter. I am. I'm, I'm in my cushy chair, so. <laughs> I'm in my, my red velvet chair, so. Oh, dear. Makes me feel, I don't know, more official somehow. <laughs> But you're very chipper for your long, long day. It has been at work. such a long day, and then we just spent the last twenty minutes trying to get the microphone connected to the stupid laptop, and it was yep. just ugh, the joys of podcasting, right? <laughs> so. I'm actually I'm actually pretty proud of us because I know there's days where I have been like I don't want to. Mm -hmm. I do not have any sort Me of too, like I have to motivation admit. to do it. And I've been pretty proud. Yeah, we kept going. We did. We do we'll it even when, we, even when we're not feeling. I know. We're not feeling up to That's it. That's right. I'm pretty. I'm proud of us too. Today was definitely one of those days where I'm yes. like, oh. I know. Well, but I was actually pretty excited about my case this time. Good. Because it was one I found all by my lonesome. I was so proud of you. I know. And it was one that I've ne I'd never heard of. Okay. But I don't understand why I've never heard of this one, just given We've my- We've had a couple of those yeah. within the last yeah. couple of weeks. And maybe maybe our listeners have. So, I, and again, I, I found a number of sources. I, f I actually came across a wonderful new thing on YouTube called Briefcase. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he goes through and I think most of his videos seem to be about 15 to 20 minutes. But he does an awesome job, and he covers crimes from around the world. So I found a new YouTube, or I don't know how new it is, but yeah. it's new to me, um, a YouTube channel where they have all of the videos are testifying, of, of people oh, testifying wow. in trials. Oh, wow. So, like, in the Gypsy Rose Blanchard <sighs> thing, Ooh. you see her testifying in Nick Godijan's trial. Like, you get to watch her entire testimony. That'd be great. What's the name of the channel? You don't remember, do you? That's okay. No, but we're not You can look it, it up. It you out. can look it up and post it or something. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a good idea. But anyway, so the, the one of the main sources for me this week was Briefcase. And it was very, very well done. And of course, you know, Wikipedia, Murderpedia. And then I found a couple of other sources roaming around out there. You know, for... Be it being burned in my brain in high school that Wikipedia is not a reliable source. I sure do use it a lot. I know, me too. Well, just usually as kind of a, a springboard, you know. And yeah. a lot of the times, if you look at the bottom of uh, it has Wikip the sources yeah. listed, and yeah. so those are always good too. So, um, so we are in West Virginia yes. this week, and my guy is named Harry Powers. Okay, he is also known as the Bluebeard. Of West Virginia so I don't know how many of you know very much about Bluebeard but um, so this also combines my love of history Pretty this usual. yes this tied in because we're in 1931 um, when most of the action takes place he is not of German descent but he is of Dutch descent like Pa Bender but where he's from in Holland was very close to the the German border um, and, and didn't we, you say those border, borders moved back a little and forth bit? Quite yeah, a bit? yeah. I mean, um, Europe in the 1800s, especially, was quite fluid. I think by the even into the 1900s, really. So, and it tied in with the Paul, with the Bender case because, excuse me, 
there was some speculation that Pa Bender was born either in Germany or Holland. Yeah. So they weren't really sure. Um, there's already a book and a pretty well-known movie in the 1950s called Night of the Hunter. And people that, you know, are into like kind of classics films. Night of the Hunter is up there as a pretty well-known you know, movie. Okay. And then there's a 2013 novel by a woman named Jane Ann Phillips called Quiet Dell, which is the exact area in West Virginia where this takes place. So okay. um, this also ties in a lot. You know, we hear a lot nowadays about people worrying about dating on the internet. Yeah, you know? because it's sketchy and that's how people die. <laughs> but again... That thing of, you know, you know, trying to figure out how to meet people to date mm -hmm. has been a problem for a very long time. And, you know, during the time that we're dealing with for my murder here, both prior to and actually well into the time that the Internet really becomes popular, there were things like Lonely Hearts Clubs. People often use the classified sections in newspapers, yeah. you know, to to find people. It was so common um, that there was even, again, a movie made in, I think it was the 1930s, starring Jimmy Stewart, who's also more famous for like, um, oh gosh, my brain is not working today. <laughs> but anyway, It's a Wonderful Life. He stars Ooh, in that. Oh, that is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yes. I love so that movie one so of much. his, quite fairly early in his career, he was in a movie called Shop Around the Corner, which later was remade as You've Got Mail, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. If I've seen that movie. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it's that whole idea, right, of, mm -hmm. you know, finding ways to meet people. Exactly. And this case kind of centers on that as well, with very, very tragic endings, unfortunately, for some of the people involved. Well, so I saw this, I saw this meme, because, of course, the internet, and it was like my childhood... <laughs> don't meet people online yeah. don't get in cars with strangers and then it's like today uber yeah it, you know yeah. what i mean right it's, right it's the exact same thing that we have been taught all of our lives like don't do mm -hmm. you don't get in cars with strangers you don't meet people that you don't know like from the internet well it's and, it's that fine line that i mean if you're going to have a civilization of any sort where you interact with people it has to be based on a certain amount of trust. Yeah. And it's and I think that's why we have this fascination with true crime and things is because that, that's when trust like that has been violated and these bonds have been broken in very, very brutal and horrific ways. Yeah. So, um, and this is also sad, trigger warning, some children die, so... I like how you give trigger warnings for I that, know. and I have never. I know. That's because it's just so hard for me, I think, I just mean, personally. Yeah. And, but you're going to love the ending. Okay. I promise. Okay. So our perpetrator, our POS of the week, <laughs> uh, Harry Powers, like we said, is born in the Netherlands in 1893, according to most sources. Okay. I found one that said 1892, some others said 1897. So again, there's a little, I don't know if some of this is just sloppy <laughs> scholarship on some people's parts or if there's actually, so, you know, that much discrepancy in some of the records. So he's born Herman Drenth is his name, his birth name. Now his family farmed in Holland. They didn't, it, from what I understood, 
They themselves did not own a farm. They just worked on neighboring farms. His mother also owned a grocery store. And there were reports from the get-go that he wasn't the best person. It seems like he was known for being kind of an aggressive kid and that sort of a thing. God, oh God. damn it. <laughs> All right, so we just had an infused Red Bull tragedy. <laughs> it's been such a long day. Poor Kaylin. She, I, we, often, we often get infused Red Bulls before we record, and poor Kaylin had a... Hell day, and I'd surprised her with one, and I just dumped the whole thing on the floor. So, <laughs> so it's not not been a good day. So, as we were saying, Harry Powers, bad kid, yes. and he was known for being aggressive. In 1910, his family was able to immigrate to the United States, and Harry left first. So he would have been, according to you know, the best, I guess, guesses. He would have been 17, 18 at this time. Okay. Um, so he, I guess, had a job set up on a farm. So he was going to go first. And you know the old stereotype about, you know, sending your troubled child to go work on a farm yeah. because, you know, they'll learn to work with the earth and they'll be exhausted and it'll be good for them. It builds character. There you go. His family seemed to hope that would be the case for him, but no. Okay. He gets to the United States and he changes his name to Harry Powers, which we know was fairly common. People would often Americanize their names in some ways. And and people still do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he almost immediately becomes a petty thief. So I don't know what happened with the farm job. I don't know how connected he was with his birth family after he came to the United States. There wasn't any information about that, just that he immediately falls into a life of petty thievery. In 1921, he falls in love with a woman named Rose Strickland, who, unfortunately, is already married. Despite that, they do have a relationship for some time before she decides, eh, this probably isn't the best thing. And breaks it off with him and goes back to her husband. Okay. At least she did something right, I guess. Yes. Which probably saved her life by the sounds of things. Probably. Although, it also put her life in danger because Harry does not take well to the breakup and sets her house on fire. Jesus. Yes. So he does spend some time in prison for this. As, well, he should have. And this is another one of those cases, you and I have talked a lot about these, where you're just like, from the get-go, what the hell? Exactly. Like my case <laughs> last week. It's like he was doing all of this stuff, and at least this dude got prison time for his arson. But, like, but again, it was for the arson. I'm sure it wasn't for anything he ever did against her. Exactly. It wasn't like attempted murder, because that's what that is when mm -hmm. you burn someone's house down when you expect them to be yeah. in it. And we, as we've talked before, too, that whole thing of attempted just pisses me off mm -hmm. just because you were I don't, you know just because the person was lucky enough to survive or you or just strong enough yeah, to get out or and, you just yeah. didn't manage you know what i mean you're you still tried to kill them like, exactly I, yeah just anyway. because you failed <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean you should get lesser of a punishment that's how it. i feel so in 1927 through one of these what are called Lonely Hearts Clubs, which would basically, you know, you would pay a fee and then you would be given addresses of fellow members. And most of the times people would exchange letters and then eventually meet and all of this sort of a thing. Okay. 
So this Luella Strother had been married. I believe she was widowed. They um, meet through this Lonely Hearts Club. In 1927, they get married. That does not stop Harry from continuing to post things in Lonely Hearts Clubs and in newspaper classified sections and to carry on his letter writing with a number of women. Pig. Yes. So, like we said, Luella owned a store and a farm, so they must have been doing okay. And I saw some things that said that Harry worked either as a vacuum cleaner salesman or selling used furniture. So, he had some sort of a job as well. And it had to have been something that did make it normal that he would have to travel sometime because he yeah. did do some traveling and he was always able to use his job to allay any fears or suspicions that Luella had. Hmm. Um, now, he would often use the alias Cornelius O'Pearson and one of the ads that he ran in these Lonely Hearts Club's, you know, postings was that he was a wealthy widower with a fortune of $150,000, which in the late 20s, 1931, was a, a lot, lot of money. money. In addition, he claimed that he brought in an income anywhere from $400 to $2,000 a month, that he worked as a civil engineer, which <laughs> was funny to me because like all the men in my family are civil engineers. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, in his ad, he claimed that his wife would never want for anything. She'd have her own car. And it was his very, very busy, demanding job as a civil engineer that made it so difficult for him to meet people. And that's why he was using these. One of the women that he connects with is a widow named Asta Eicher, who has three children. She's 50 years old. And she had been left fairly well off after the death of her husband, who is a silversmith. She lived in Park Ridge, Illinois. She and Harry corresponded for some time, and he finally came to visit her on the 23rd of June in 1931. And he stayed, I believe it was for five days, and then they left together supposedly to get married. And so um, Asta leaves her three children, Greta, who is 14, Harry, 12, and Annabelle, 9. She leaves them behind with a child. She was referred to as a childminder, which I love that term. A woman named Elizabeth Abernathy. And so... That name sounds super familiar. (laughs) I think Abernathy is one of those names that it is fairly common in certain time periods and it sticks with you. So after a while, Elizabeth Abernathy receives a letter that this man, and they all thought he was, at the time, they thought he was Cornelius Pearson. That was the name he was using. And it seems like he used that alias pretty consistently in most of these letters, although I believe he used some others as well. Hmm. Anyway, he writes to Elizabeth that he is coming to retrieve the three children. And when he shows up, he's alone by himself which is already weird weird and one of the first things he does is he sends one of the children to the bank to cash a check the child comes back empty-handed with no money because the bank claims 
the signature was forged. So quite in kind of a rush, Pearson, actually Harry Powers, uh, packs up the kids. He tells Elizabeth Abernathy that they're all heading to Europe together and they disappear. This was in July. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't that long, right? Mm -hmm. they, he arrives the 23rd of June, stays for a few days, they leave, and then he comes back by himself. Around this same time, he had also been corresponding with another 50-year-old widow, a woman named Dorothy Lemke in Northborough, Massachusetts. And very shortly after all of this is happening in Illinois, he goes to Massachusetts and meets her and makes the plan that they are going to go to Iowa to marry. I thought she was going to sneeze. I, I had was to stop. going to sneeze and then it went away. <laughs> so <clears throat> when he gets to Massachusetts, he has her withdraw $4,000 from her bank. And also, she sells $8,000 in stocks. So obviously, Dorothy Lemke is another fairly wealthy woman. And he tells her that they're going to get married, move to this farm that he owns in Iowa. But what she doesn't notice is when he mails off her trunks of, you know, all of her possessions, he has them sent to Cornelius O. Pearson in Fairmont, West Virginia. And Dorothy Lemke is never heard from again. Now, meanwhile, back in Park Ridge, Illinois, the neighbors of Asta are quite suspicious. There's obviously something that just doesn't seem right to them. And a few weeks after he had arrived and taken the children away, Harry returns to the house in Illinois with a moving company and starts packing everything up. The neighbors call the police, and when the police arrive, again he claims, hey, I'm Cornelius Pearson, Asta and I are friends, she's moved to Colorado, Denver specifically, to visit some family, and she also met some guy there and she's gonna get married. He produces a letter that seems to be written by Asta that he shows to the police, which the letter says that he had paid the mortgage on the house, that he had paid off the taxes, and he was it was his responsibility to then prepare the house to be rented out. Harry then, the police are like, okay, you know, I mean, yeah. they're not sure what to do there. The letter seems legit. But as Harry's packing up, he's only taking the big stuff. He leaves behind the clothing, the children's toys, all of that kind of stuff. Hmm. And locks up the house and leaves off with the movers. The neighbors, again, are very suspicious. They don't let it rest. And thank goodness for these neighbors. Yeah. So they keep on the police. And here, I thought this was really interesting, too, because you and I have spent a lot of time talking about, specifically in this time period, that, you know, police really only worried about their jurisdiction. Yeah. And, you know, if something... I don't know. They just didn't seem to always follow up very well Yeah. from state to state things. The police here did a very good job because they remembered that this guy said his name was Cornelius Pearson, that he's from West Virginia. So they keep pursuing it and they keep investigating and they're trying to hunt down 
a man named Cornelius Pearson. They're also questioning people there in Illinois. They come across a friend of Greta, Asta's oldest daughter, the one who was 14. She shows them a letter that she supposedly received from Greta, claiming that Greta was having this awesome time in Colorado. The only problem was the letter's postmark came from Clarksburg, Virginia. Okay, so this was a, this happened in our last week's episode mm-hmm. as well with my case. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be dumb enough to send a forged letter, at least try to figure out a way to get it postmarked from the correct place. <laughs> like you. <laughs> well, and we'll get into that. There's a, like so many of my historical cases. There are so many more questions about this than there are answers, and we'll get to that in a little bit, too. So the police are continuing to be quite diligent. They cannot trace anyone named Cornelius Pearson, but they do finally find someone in Clarksburg, Virginia, who's like the postmaster at the local post office, who's like, well, yeah, I have a post box here that gets a ton of letters to Cornelius Pearson. But the guy who actually pays to rent the post box is uh, Harry Harry Powers. Powers. Yep. So, um, so again, thank goodness for this, you know, postmaster. Thank goodness for the police being this diligent. And so the cops immediately go out to Harry Powers. They arrest him and question him. They, you know, it's pretty cut and dry that there's something going on here. While being questioned by the police, Harry continues to claim that he and Asta were only friends, that she had gone to Denver to marry some other guy, and he even starts to claim that he himself is the owner of one of these Lonely Hearts clubs and that he helps set people up, you know, with others. Yes. The cops go to his home and search around, and this is where things get interesting and tie in with a lot of the cases that you have done as well. Okay. So like we said, he had married... You know, he was married in 1927, and sometime after his marriage, he built a garage. Which, okay, not that unusual, right? Well, his garage is a full mile from the house. It's built of concrete, has no windows. And when the police enter this garage, they find several small cells. So one of the sources I said said there were four rooms. But there was also reference to like an underground space. And again, I I had a hard time finding just one source that put everything all together. So in in any case, this garage has several small cells, each with a door that can lock. So it's a dungeon, not a garage. And there are women's and children's clothing inside. As well as a small bloody footprint. There's also a trap door that leads into a dark tunnel in which they find jewelry that belonged to Asta as well as other personal items. So they again start investigating some more. They start digging nearby and find the four bodies of Asta and her children all buried Asta has been blindfolded. She's still blindfolded when they find her corpse. And all of the heads had been... Cr- well, one source again said that all of the heads had had been crushed. One of the sources that I read said that 
what he had done, so the story went that he had taken Asta, locked her up in this garage, went back, got her children, brought them back, had all four of them there together, and then he took them into a room where there was a noose, and then he hanged them. And this would have been death by strangulation because it wasn't, you know, a gallows where you drop down and it snaps your neck. This was, this was torturous and horrific. And so one of the sources said they hanged everybody except the boy and that he bashed in his head with a hammer. And that's where the bloody footprint had come from. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, this is awful. And obviously there's a fair amount of torture going on here. Yeah. You're making other people, you know, I mean, it's just, it's horrific. Did he ever have children of his own with his wife? No. Did he marry? No? Okay. Thank God. For real? Yeah. Um, they also find the body of Dorothy Lemke. So they do find all five bodies. And as they continue their search, they also find a huge chest filled with letters and photographs and from that chest, they're able to ascertain that he had been doing this Lonely Hearts Club business for at least a decade. Jesus. Yes. Um, they also found a camera with a roll of film of it, which they developed, and it was photos of him and Dorothy Lemke, like on a trip, you know, so... <sighs> During that time when she thought, oh, we're going to get married and live happily ever after. At least it was happy pictures and not torture pictures. Yeah. So, of course, once they find the bodies, you know, the, the jig is up. He does basically admit to the police what he has done. This is when the story comes out about him hanging them, that he had the noose in the garage and all of that. Um, the police did ask him how many people, because obviously... If he had 10 years worth of photographs and letters, even the police were like, as sophisticated a setup as he had created there, mm-hmm. there was no way this was the first time he had done this. Yeah, no. And it was too planned out and it, too well done. Exactly. And I would say, you know, like a modern day profiler would say the same thing yeah. that, you know, this probably wasn't his first time at the rodeo. Um, He was asked by the police, how many people have you killed? And his answer was a shrug and I don't know. So, yeah. Um, Other women do come forward later and claim that, yes, they too had written him letters. What one of the most common stories was that he would promise to marry them. He would tell them to empty their bank accounts and send the money to him. They would do so. And then he would just disappear. Oh, so he was just stealing everybody's money for right, the most part. Right, right. And like I said, it doesn't seem like there was any other hard evidence about murders except for when shortly after he came to the United States, I believe he did work for a time as a vacuum sales, you know, traveling door-to-door vacuum salesman in Iowa. There was a man he worked with that he himself mentioned that he had killed him. And there was pretty good evidence they did. And there was another woman that he had been associated with who had also disappeared around that time. So those two are probably, you know, there's enough circumstantial evidence there to tie into those. But that's about it. 
So the murders had happened in July of 1931. On the 7th of December, 1931, his trial starts. Okay. So you like that because it's yes, quick. very quick. Yeah. Um, this is a fairly small town in, Virgin in West Virginia. So they moved the trial to the local opera house, which had seating for over 1,100 people. So because there's Damn. such a, yeah, it's, and again, this is one of those cases that it's, all over the newspapers, you know, everyone in town obviously is going to come watch. Um, they said when the trial began, he was very nonchalant. He just sat there chewing gum and acting very unconcerned. But after a couple days when they made him take the stand, he bursts into tears on the stand. He claims that he had a miserable marriage and that's why he had to still have these Lonely Heart Club you know, letter memberships. Fucking bullshit excuses <laughs> is all I hear. Yeah, he claimed on the stand that he had never killed anybody, just that he was guilty, basically, of cheating on his wife by writing these letters and everything. The jury deliberates for an hour and 50 minutes and comes back with guilty. guilty. And the judge immediately sentences him to hang. Once he's put back when he goes to prison, Harry writes out a very detailed confession about the five murders. Yeah. And apparently he confessed also that, you know, he liked to lock them up and then listen to them scream, yeah. that he would keep them for a few days, which again tells me you've done this before. Mm -hmm. This was, these were not your first nor your only murders by a long shot. The number 50 came up as far as the number of people he may have killed and the police had suspicions of that but like I said there was never any further proof and again you'll approve of this on the 18th of March 1932 he was led to the gallows at the West Virginia prison he was asked given the ability you know to say do you have any last words he said no and was promptly hanged and that was the end of the piece of garbage known as Harry Powers. Success! He died. Yes. yes. And once again, Kyle, no kink shaming. So there you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, the, like I said, the thing that really struck me about this case was it seems very dated on the surface. And yet there's so many modern day similarities with this, again... You have many people who are looking for meaningful, loving relationships. They, you know, use the technology that they have at their hands to try and create those. And unfortunately, it sometimes goes horrifically and tragically wrong because you also have people out there who like to prey on people. Stranger danger, people. Stranger danger. Stranger danger. So, so I, in my single times <laughs> I had come up with and also not only I didn't come up with all of these some of these had been suggested to me by people close to me uh -huh. and I will share this info with everyone so our single listeners who are on the tinders and the stuff like that who are meeting absolute strangers and don't want to get murdered yes there are a few tips one thing that Every, any time I met, which was almost never because anxiety <laughs> and stranger danger. Right. Anytime I met someone or was going somewhere with someone I did not know, 
take a picture of the license plate and send it to someone you trust. Oh, that's a good idea. Hey, I'm going on a blind date. I don't know anything about this dude. Here's his license plate. If I go up missing, at least you have some sort of connection. Mm -hmm. Or like with iPhones, you can send your location to people. Mm -hmm. You get somewhere. Maybe you, you went home with someone that you don't know. Send your mom. Maybe not your mom. <laughs> Send a sister hey, or a mom, brother. Hey, mom, I'm having a one-night stand. Here's my address. <laughs> Just in case I come up missing. You know what I mean? So, like, things like that. You can, like, send your location for a certain amount of time. Right. And things like that. And Well, and there are a lot of things technology-wise today that I think... A, do in fact make people a lot safer. Yeah, there's a more, there's a bigger foot trail. But at the same time, sometimes, just like always, that feeling of safety can also be an illusion because you always have people, it seems, who find ways to, you know, work around it and still do horrible things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It makes me very nervous. Yeah. Me too. Across I'm, the I'm board. I'm all about yeah. that stranger danger. Yeah. And I've always been a highly paranoid person. So have I. So I've never done the blind date thing. I've never. It's terrifying. Yeah. I just, I, I don't know why I, I, I've just never. Yeah. I think I, I just, it makes me too nervous. I yeah, guess. It's, so. it's, it's terrifying. I've only, I've only done it a, a couple, maybe, I don't know, two, maybe, maybe two or three times. And it's fucking terrifying every single time. Yeah. Because you don't know who these people are. You don't know what's going to happen. And the other thing in these situations, you know, that also always breaks my heart is far too often people very, very easily shift into the victim blaming, you know, about, well, they should have been more careful. They shouldn't have done this. Instead of focusing on, you shouldn't effing murder people. Okay. Right. You you know what? I, I mean, honestly, and, you know, if, if all of us took all of the precautions necessary to 100% guarantee we'd never be murdered or raped or victimized. We would have no meaningful relationships of any sort of any kind. Exactly. And that that's just one of the sad truths. And yeah. the, I mean, that's a harsh reality of life. Mm-hmm. You cannot keep yourself safe enough from all of that stuff and still interact in a meaningful way with other people. Well, and then I also like very fully believe that you never fully know somebody. Well, and we've talked a lot, you know, because I've been on the diatribe lately about women being mostly women. And again, I know it happens to men too, but people being killed by their significant others. That's far more likely to happen to a woman than being killed by a stranger. Exactly. And it's just, you never fully know someone because if you look back at almost any like notorious famous serial killer most of them were married right had families had kids and they don't expect that from their parent their brother their sister their mom their dad they don't they don't expect that Mm -mm. and and when they're arrested, you know, there's always that common narrative of, I can't believe I never thought it would be this per. You know what I mean? In fact, that's so much a trope in society that back, I want to say it was in the 80s, Saturday Night Live shortly after Ronald Reagan, his assassination attempt, Saturday Night Live did a skit where <laughs> the character Buckwheat 
had been shot by somebody. And then it came out, when it came out that who the person was that had shot him, they were interviewing people. They're like, can you believe that it was Alfalfa that shot Buckwheat? And everybody's like, oh yeah, he talked about killing him all the time. And that was the joke, yeah. you know, because the reality is people are always saying, oh, I can't believe it was that person. It's, yeah. you know, and <laughs> nobody's ever like, oh yeah, I totally believe that guy was a murderer. I knew that was going to happen. That's much more, more less common. likely yeah. yeah and it's and i mean i've seen it i've seen it happen but then you go back to like the scott riggs case mm-hmm. when that happened i was like look at him though we knew we we both knew the family and know the family i guess we knew of him knew him knew the family and i know there's a lot of people especially here in town we're like well you know who he is you know what i mean mm-hmm. like that was i think one of the like polar opposites. Most people are like, "Oh, I never would have guessed that this right. person would have did that." I'm like, "But you know who he is." Right, and that's so often the case in these, you know, domestic murders where people know have known for a long time what was going on, but you turn a blind eye or you try to lessen it or you try to think it'll never get that far. I don't know. I it, it's it's horrible, but yeah, yeah, it is horrible. So anyway, that was an interesting case. If you're more interested too, like said, one of my favorite new finds on Facebook, and I know I've mentioned it before. YouTube? Oh, Facebook. Okay. Yeah, on Facebook is Women Count USA, which does a fabulous job of tracking. She is amazing. The deaths of women in this country and the inherent sexism in the way that many of these cases are reported and handled and dealt with. And it's, it's very eye-opening. I feel like that's going to... The work she's doing is probably some of the best I've ever seen. And I also feel like that discussion and the things that she is pointing out are also going to be one of our best ways to try to fight this and, and make sure that it becomes much less common than it already is. So. I think the reason she is so successful in what she does is because she is so unapologetically truthful. Right. And she wants to put the the scary, the sad, the mm-hmm. anger. She wants to put all of the bad things out there mm-hmm. because people need to know about it. Right. And I think that's what make that's what's making her page mm-hmm. and what she does so successful yes. is because she's so unapologetic about it. And that's what we need from her. Well, or from anybody. Well, it's again, you know, it's all the false narratives that you hear all the time. You know, for instance, terrorism. Everybody wants to freak out about terrorism. And oh my God, you know, the terrorists are going to get me. If you're a woman in this country, the number one, you know, the most common way that most women die is from their domestic partners. And I mean, that's just the, the, the statistics are astronomical. You're much, much more likely to be killed by somebody that you've been in an intimate relationship with than ISIS. And I mean, but nobody thinks about that. Exactly. And again, I mean, that's a horrible thought to have as well, but this is a discussion we have to have so we can make it better. Exactly. So anyway, Thank you for listening. Join us on our Facebook discussion group page. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and you can also email us at stateofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Correct. And Kaylin is awesome about making all these things happen for us. And she's going to have an awesome case for us on Thursday when we return.
to West Virginia. Yes, I'm excited. Me too. Thanks for listening.